0: Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm the host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, how to redesign your school for the people right in front of you. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Glane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I am the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, raising cyber-ethical kids, and cyber-traps for expecting moms and dads. Hey, there's a third of them right there. (laughs) Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising out of the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber-safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to na- better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cyber Traps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And I might add, uh, officially official, I got paperwork from the Washington Secretary of State saying that we are a real organization.
1: Woohoo. That is fantastic. <laughs> well, that, wow, that puts a whole different light on things. So now yeah. um, we will go out and we will start soliciting funds for this mission. It's very exciting. That's right.
0: Yeah. Very exciting. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. It's going to be yes, great. Yes,
1: we will have a big coming out party at our 50th episode, which remarkably just remarkably, is only about four weeks away. So yeah. that being said, one of the people slash organizations who has helped to get us this far is our good buddy, Scott Rabinowitz, who is the founder and operator of Buoyancy Digital. He says that Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott, who has been in digital media since 1997, and during which time he has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms for IAB, Google, and a Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising, sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers. Reach out to Scott on LinkedIn at ScottRMedia or contact him through his website, buoyancydigital.com. Hey there, Jethro. Hello. What a great day. Well, it really is. So the state of Washington has given its stamp of approval.
0: It has. It essentially doesn't mean much because they'll give their stamp of (laughs) approval to anybody, but that's okay. We've filled out the paperwork, paid the fee. We're good to go.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't think we denigrate it yet. Let's just see how we do that's so right. That, that being said, let us plunge into today's cyber trap, cyber ethical topic. And we're going to pick up on the thread of the conversation that started last week mm-hmm. when we had Lita and Katie Schmidt on talking about uh, the, the challenges of raising a child in a high tech world. And of course, Lita was in somewhat of an advantageous position because she worked in tech in a variety of different ways. So she knew what the game was, but I think even she found it challenging.
0: Well, she certainly did. And I definitely encourage people to go back and listen to that episode because there is so much good stuff about how to communicate, about how to manage expectations around technology. And it was really good and really just beneficial to think about from a parent-child relationship. And, you know, we had a mom and a daughter on, and, you know, we we could have at some point a father and a son, a mom and a son. Uh, and, you know, those dynamics are different, and it's important to pay attention to that because your relationship with your kids is what is going to win the day for them in all of this. So we're going to talk about some scary stuff today and some crazy stuff today, but it's important to know that you have power as a parent, to, uh, to help support your kids so that they're not exposed to this kind of stuff.
1: And it's also important to underscore that even though you and I do tend to focus on some of the risks, some of the potential harms that people can stumble into, you know, this concept of cyber traps, that both of us use social media extensively. We recognize the good things that can be done with it and that's absolutely true for kids as well there's all of these great stories about kids using social media in affirming ways but people need to be aware of what the flip side is
0: yeah and and the the thing that i would really say to parents specifically about this is the good things can happen but the good things are much more rare than the negative things that can happen and so it's it's easy to fall into something negative so For example, Seth Godin says that um, if we just let market forces work as it were, that everything on the internet would be pornography in about five (laughs) clicks. And really, you can get to pornography in five clicks from just about any site. And that is just one of the things that is that is harmful to our kids, not to mention all the other things that can go on and do go on. So we, I, I think I have a book about that, actually. I think you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> So Funny thing. Yeah, so we, we recognize that there are good things and good things can happen. Um, we want those good things to happen and we're gonna tell you how to help those good things happen. And if you go listen to the interview with Lita and Katie, you're gonna see how they made those good things happen. And hopefully some of our tips today will help with that also.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to put it. And the other piece that I wanted to pick up on what you started with is this concept of communication. You know, it's interesting because we focus heavily, obviously, on digital communications, but so much of the preventative tools revolve around just the day-to-day oral conversations within a family. And that form of communication i think we would both agree can be much more powerful if it's applied consistently to these kinds of issues
0: absolutely that is that is by far the thing that everybody says when we talk to them about this how do we how do we solve it you communicate and well, it 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 is those oral communications it is talking about things face to face that really matters a lot so we've got to continue doing that
1: well and let's do our own in show plug jethro for not just the paperback and ebook version of raising cyber ethical kids but you and i put together an audio version of that was it a six-part course that people can reach out and take a listen to and it will help to guide some of those conversations
0: yeah it absolutely will and that is really the gist of it is have the conversation um, but in that audio course, we talk about the different ways. So it is different from the book Raising Cyberethical Kids in that we take a more conversational approach to it. And it's really good. If you want to get that, you can go to gum.co, gum.co slash RCK audio. That's Raising Cyberethical Kids audio, RCK audio. Um, so definitely go and check that out. Um, and um, you can get that, listen to that by yourself with your kids. Uh, with your teachers, whatever you need to do to help people understand um, how to have these conversations and what to talk about with these kids.
1: Well, and just one last point on that, that I'd like to um, let people know that we just did a license for an entire school community in which the uh, school made it available to all of the parents within the district. And for all of you educators out there listening, uh, we strongly urge you to consider doing that.
0: Yeah, really exciting because um, I and I talked to the superintendent just last week about that and she was just happy. She loved how it looked on the website and how, you know, people could just go and listen to it. And it was really easy and nice for them. So, uh, you know, that's definitely an option to reach out to either one of us and we can get you squared away on that and um, and make sure that, you know, more people have access to this, which is what we're trying to do through the Center for Cyber Ethics which is a real thing now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that's fantastic. Okay, well let's move on to the meat of today's live discussion and as we said at the top of this we are going to be diving a little bit into the social media realm for kids and for parents and I think it's useful to just remind people of the landscape in which we are operating now. So taking Facebook as our starting place, obviously not the first social media uh, organization out there. I show of hands, I had a MySpace account briefly. <laughs> um, Jethro did as well. But obviously the 800 or 8,000 pound gorilla in terms of social media is Facebook, um, founded by Zuckerberg in his Harvard dorm room famously in 2004. Um, Initially limited to people who had college or university email addresses, but needless to say, that was a limited pool and Zuckerberg had bigger dreams. So as of September 2006, it was open to anybody over the age of 13 with a valid email address. So we're coming up on just, this is the remarkable thing, just the 15th anniversary of public access to facebook
0: yeah which is wild and imagine if he if he would have when he opened it up said that anybody over 15 or 14 or any other age could have used it how much different that would have made things because even though it wasn't the first social network it was the first one that caught on like wildfire and quickly, everybody had a Facebook account or wanted a Facebook account. And that that's what I find so fascinating, that these decisions that were made early on had an impact because now pretty much every social media site out there now has in their policy that you have to be 13 in order to have an account, which it really, I don't know if anybody's ever asked him this, but I'm pretty sure that was just an arbitrary number that he just said, well, you know. I don't really want little kids on here because little kids are annoying. They don't know how to use it. So, you know, (laughs) teenager, that should be good. Um, You know, that's really, really, that's only like seventh grade, maybe sixth grade in some places that, you know, that's, that's not, that's not kids who are, who are yet fully developed in their, in their minds or in their bodies. And so I, I wonder what would have happened had he said, okay, you have to be at least 15 or at least 16. If you can drive, you can use Facebook. Like what would that, what have been the ramifications for us going
1: forward on that? That's a really interesting point, Jethro. Um, keeping in mind that that policy decision by Facebook was made nine years before Congress passed the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, which actually codified that 13 age level. And you know, for most American schools, what you're really talking about is eighth grade and up. So I suspect if you're Zuckerberg, you're really trying to tap into the high school market. And this is the idea if we're going to try to capture these kids young, right? Before they go off to college, before they become adults, because we want to get them into the habit of using our service. And may I just add, that is a major motivation for every social media programmer.
0: Yeah, for sure. For anybody, for regular big brands, <laughs> you know, we, we want kids who are under 18 to start using it because once you, once you raise up a child, then, then they're not going to depart from that. So that's, that's an important thing for, for everything. You know, if you teach kids how to do something it's very likely they're going to stay with you for, for a very long time. I've seen that in my own life with, you know, boring things like insurance I've been with the same company for so long. So why should I stop? My parents did this. So why should I do anything different? When you know you don't know that much about it. And it's it's certainly a way to to suck people in. So well, it's one of the
1: <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry, it's just I was laughing because you know, those habits are really deeply ingrained. I will occasionally buy a you know, kind of organic, all natural version of ketchup, and I still feel like I'm cheating on Heinz. You know, like yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Right. Like I'm, I'm violating some relationship. Anyway, um, please go ahead.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I one of the things that I wanted to talk about was this article by uh, uh, in Platformer, uh, which is by uh, Casey Newton, and mm. I want to share a couple of charts that he had in there that he pulled from. Will Joel at The Verge. And I think what is um, powerful to address here, and I'm going to just share my screen here real quick. I forgot to do this before I started talking. Um, What's really fascinating here is this talks about platform usage habits. And I know some people are going to be listening to this, so they won't be able to see it, but I'll have a link in the show notes to this article. And what is really fascinating is how much time um, kids, and he's just looking at Ages nine to twelve and ages thirteen to seventeen. So, not looking at every uh, adult or anything like that. Just just kids who are under eighteen. And uh, the the most used app is YouTube. And eighty percent of all minors use it at least once per day. All minors surveyed, but you know you can extrapolate that, and it's probably pretty accurate. And the thing is, is even with YouTube, schools use YouTube all the time for. Uh, lessons and and things like that. Um, the other big ones are Snapchat and TikTok, Instagram. Um, but by far, YouTube is the biggest one, and I, I just think that that is really fascinating how much kids are using it. Any any comments or thoughts on that, Fred?
1: Well, a couple of different things, Jethro. I mean, if you take a look, and again, we've got links to a number of articles in the show notes for this, but there's an article from the Sun from 2020 that was written by Paul Harper, in which he did an overview of the age access for different services. And one of the things he notes is that if parents give their consent, then YouTube is perfectly happy to have under 18s there. But without parental consent, you actually have to be over 18 to use YouTube. And that's a reflection of the content that's on YouTube, you know, that a lot of that very quickly can get either dark or disturbing or overly sexualized for kids. I mean, you talk about five clicks. I'm actually really surprised it's that many. I think it would actually for a tech savvy kid be a lot less.
0: Yeah, um, I made up five. I don't know exactly how many. There, oh, I didn't okay. have a study or anything. I just said within five <laughs> clicks. And the reality is, is within five clicks, uh, I think anywhere you can you can get sure. there. So.
1: Absolutely. So I think when people take a look at this chart, and I really do urge people to go and do so. Um, it... it it is a little staggering when you're thinking about the levels of development you know, at ages nine and 12 to see that just under 80% of them are using YouTube. Now, whether or not they're using it with their own account or if they're using a parental account, that's an interesting question. And we'll get into some of this in a little bit, but always when you're talking about those particular age groups, you know, the the question that you have to be asking is what kind of supervision is there in terms of what they're doing on these services? And other services, some of which can be quite potentially challenging are, you know, at 40%, you know, places like Snapchat, TikTok, um, Instagram, and we'll talk about some of the risks and some of the harms that can be associated with that. But those are services where if you're not 13 years old, you shouldn't be on that platform at all. Mm -hmm. And there's no provision for parental approval. It's just a flat rule. Now, Snapchat does have Snap Kids, which is aimed at uh, kids under 13. And then you've got um, Facebook talking about a sub 13 Instagram. But, you know, of course the proof or the the devil is in the implementation and the details of how they roll that out. But... We have a problem just as things stand in terms of kid access to these different uh, services. Yeah,
0: so the next part of this article shows another chart that talks about potentially harmful experiences online by platform. And so it lists uh, all the social media, not all of them, but most of the social media platforms. Of those who use each platform, how many have had a potentially harmful experience? um, And how many of those... Have had an online sexual experience, so a potentially harmful experience. So, of those who use each platform, um, it, uh, of, of YouTube, for example, nineteen percent of kids have had a potentially harmful experience. Um, but then, if you look at Instagram and Snapchat, it's twenty-six percent of um, kids who have had a potential who have had a potentially harmful experience. And then when you look at the sexual interactions, um, those are, are actually happening. Also, again, on Snapchat and Instagram, 60% for both of those as well. So kids are, are being exposed to harmful things and having sexual experiences online as teenagers in these social media platforms. And, you know, there's, there's more discussion about whether or not these kids think they're having these experiences with other kids or with adults or what have you and and that brings up a lot of scary issues as well.
1: Well I think Jethro that what, what you're underscoring there is that there's a significant need for further research in terms of how these platforms are used, what kind of specific experiences kids are having in terms of how they interact with each other, Uh, when we're talking about harms, right, we could be thinking about things like cyber harassment, cyber bullying. Uh, We could be thinking about, um, obviously, uh, sexual commentary of one kind or another, uh, potentially grooming. One of the things that's disturbing about this is that there are potentially harmful experiences that kids may not even necessarily recognize until many, many years later. So, With respect to the grooming, one of the specific goals of somebody who is grooming someone on social media is to lead them down a particular path without them necessarily realizing it. Uh, Similarly, a lot of kids internalize uh, what what is broadly referred to as, as body dysmorphia, a sense of dissatisfaction with different aspects of their body because of the feedback that they get from social media. And I think this is where Instagram is particularly harmful. And then beyond that, you know, one of the perhaps vaguer, but I think still substantial concerns is whether or not kids are, are um, ingesting and absorbing a sense of general dissatisfaction with life because there's so much, you know, uh, gaudy display of, wealth and, and just consumerism. And I think that, that that's something we really need to reflect upon as parents in terms of what we're allowing our kids to expose themselves to.
0: Well, and th- and that's really where the what we've been saying, the conversation really matters. You need to be talking about what your kids are seeing, how they're r- relating to it and interacting with it. And you know, that piece about kids not understanding the harmful effects of of what they're experiencing for many years is a real issue. And kids don't have the capacity sometimes to see danger. That's why kids follow a ball out into a street because they're focused (laughs) on the ball. They're not focused on the cars that could be coming. And so we worry a ton about that as parents. And yet we let them chase the proverbial ball into the street on the internet all the time without seeing the same kind of danger with that.
1: Yeah, I I think your point is well taken. The, The challenge is to it's sort of the boiling frog thing, right? <laughs> a frog in a pot of water, and you just turn up the temperature slowly, and then the frog never realizes it needs to jump out at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think with kids and social media, that's a, a real potential. And if parents are going to let their kids get onto social media, for starters, there there are really powerful reasons to observe the age limitation of 13. Um, The federal law, the Child Online Privacy Protection Act is specifically designed to limit what social media, what all companies really can collect uh, from children in terms of information and its use and their use of that information. So if you have a child who is under the age of 13 already you're expanding the universe of data that these companies can collect about that child. And honestly, it just lengthens the period of time where there's the potential for a social media mistake that might have a deleterious impact on their life going forward. So these are all considerations. There's There really shouldn't be, apart from peer pressure and honestly, social media pressure, there shouldn't be a rush to get kids onto social media.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly not. And so there are some good strategies that we have uh, to share with you today that I think would be beneficial. Um, And the first one is to be a good role model and to use social media appropriately to say, sorry, kids, you're not allowed to get an account until you're older. And so we're going to enforce that in our home. I mean, that is a simple thing to do, but so powerful.
1: Well, it really is. I mean, that's the starting place, right? You want kids to be cyber ethical. We're going to start using that word a lot. Yes, we are. You (laughs) you You want kids to be cyber ethical in terms of their use of these services. And the first role modeling you can do is, okay, here are the regulations for the use of the service. They say you need to be 13. I'm not going to help you get around that. And mm-hmm. obviously we would have to discuss the consequences if I discover that you have gone on to these services before you turn 13. So there's that. But the other thing that parents do need to keep in mind is that the role modeling is not just adherence to whatever the terms and conditions of the service are, but also on how they use it. And I think one of the things that is absolutely true is that kids watch intently what adults are doing, particularly with devices. And if they Mm -hmm. see parents, you know, getting into arguments with other people or maybe sharing inappropriate stuff or what have you, then that's going to influence how they use the service going forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you when you have an opportunity to look at something um, online, it's really easy to say, well, I can just pretend like I'm over 18 or over 13 or whatever. And so when I was a kid, the, the video game Diablo came out. And I remember thinking that game looks really cool and I'm totally going to buy it when it comes out, which I did. But when I went to the website, it said you, in order to watch this trailer for the game, you have to be over 18. So put your age in. And so I put my age in, even though I most certainly was not over 18. I sure said I was on the form because I wanted to watch that video. And it's that easy to get around the age protection, policies that are in place. And um, so we, we interviewed uh, Sam Bourgeois last week, and he talked about being in, um, in China and how Not everything in China is great. I'm not going to lie. But one thing that he said that I thought was really fascinating was that in order to have a phone number that is connected to these social media platforms there, you have to verify your identity and say, this is who I am. This is my age. And here's, here's who I'm going to be on this social media platform. And that for the protection of kids. I think is a really great place to start. I think there are other problems with that, that, that we certainly would should address, but for kids, if, if there is a way to verify if you were under 18, that you had parent permission, that parents were aware, I'm sorry, if you were under 18, that parent, that you had parent permission and parents were aware that you were doing it, that would be really great.
1: Well, this has been the eternal tension of the internet from the get go is this Uh, you know, this this sense of freedom and anonymity and and the ability to exchange information regardless of who you are as an individual. And as the internet has matured, obviously needs have arisen in terms of better verification, particularly with respect to kids. Um, For me, this is a little bit funny, right? Because I, when I turned 18, the IBM PC was just coming out. So all of these age verification things have only been relevant to me in my capacity as a parent. And yes, we you know we grappled with some of these issues with the four boys that we had, but um, it was a very different world. Um, well, in and terms the- of timing.
0: And this is what's really fascinating is that we're all learning it together, which is why we're struggling so much with it. You know, when when you were a kid and turning 18 and 21, um, I think when you were turning 18, you were allowed to buy cigarettes. And when you turned 21, you were allowed to drink. And so mm-hmm. those right. those things were already established long before. And so your parents already knew, like, you can't go buy beer until you're 21, And kids still found a way to get it right.
1: Like, I'm not, I'm not going to confirm nor (laughs) deny what happened in college. (laughs) So, I mean, underage drinking
0: has always been a problem and underage social media use will always be a problem. But we can at least start putting some things in place. So the next piece of suggestion we want to talk about is as your kids are using social media, we want you to to do what Josh Spodek on this program recommended, which is to find mentors, not friends or influencers. So don't think of Facebook friends as friends. Think of them as mentors. So if you are seeking out the kind of people that you want to become, then that's a great place to start for helping kids know who to follow and who to pay attention to on
1: social media. The point about influencers is I think particularly germane, because this is precisely one of the things that we are addressing, you know, in terms of envy or dissatisfaction of body dysmorphia, the question really comes down to who is influencing your children. You know, where are they getting their inputs from? Where are they getting their role models and if you know i don't want to pick on any particular celebrity although i have a list but you know if your kids are seeing certain kinds of behavior there's going to be a need to really talk through with them what that means and what how those things that they're seeing on social media square with your family values and if you're not having the conversations with your kids then they're getting the influencing without the countervailing force of your values. And, and you want your voice to be at least as loud as what they're seeing on social media and not loud in the volume sense, but in the presence sense.
0: Exactly. That's that's a beautiful way to put it because the presence is what really matters. And we know that kids are going to make their own choices. They're going to follow their friends. Um, There's that Jim Rohn quote that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I think that that applies to social media as well. And if you are following trash online, you yourself are going to be trash. And if you are following uplifting, positive, good things, then that's going to happen for you as well. And I mean, it just, we, we are influenced by what we expose ourselves
1: to. Well it's a great variation on you are what you eat right and we consume oh, there you go. that's so a good one <laughs> we, we consume we consume media in a whole bunch of different places and in a whole bunch of different ways and yeah obviously with respect to internet content there's junk food and there's you know less junk food I'm not sure mm-hmm. any of it's exactly whole foods <laughs> but that's a whole whole conversation but you know in terms of practical recommendations you know, related to this is the ability to to supervise what your kids are doing. And one of the things I really like to tell the parent groups that I speak to, not tell them so much as remind them, is that supervision is not surveillance. I think a lot of us, given the kind of uh, Orwellian uh, capabilities of technology these days, worry about the issue of, of surveillance. And there are legitimate concerns about that. And we can talk a lot more about that some other time. But in terms of parenting and kids' use of technology, the proper way to think about it is supervision, because the parents are the ones who are providing the technology to children. Um, They're the ones who are paying for the data plan, the cellular access, all the rest of that. So... At the very least, that gives them a legal responsibility to know what is going on and to know how those devices are being used. We haven't really seen the surge in um, lawsuits, mostly civil lawsuits against parents in terms of cyberbullying cases and so forth, but I still expect those to rise in the years to come. Um, But even beyond that particular threat, I mean, there's just a simple familial slash moral obligation to know what your kids are doing and how they're handling these devices. So, you know, obviously you talk, Jethro, a lot about being a follower of your kids. Um, That's probably, you know, 50% of the solution. The other piece, particularly when kids are younger, is to actually have the ability to log into their account because sometimes what they're doing on that account may not be publicly viewable. And again, the more communication, the easier that process is.
0: Yeah. And really that comes down to, so for example, when my daughter first started uh, texting, we said, you can text family members and family members that we have said, it's okay for you to text. And so that's grandma and grandpa. That's, a aunt or uncle um i have three brothers and three sisters and my wife has four sisters there's lots of options out there but we don't (laughs) want our kids we don't want our kids texting every single one of them um some of them we're closer to some of them are far away some of them have different values some of them don't want to be bothered by kids (laughs) <laughs> that's just like, it's okay. That's fine. So have fun at you know,
1: Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: right. and so like, I love all my siblings for sure, but some of them, you know, my, my sure. kids, as they're learning how to do this, it's just not okay. And so as, as they're getting older, they can branch out and text more people. And, you know, when my daughters started wanting to text friends, then we needed to have clear conversations about what that would look like. We needed to say, what are you going to do when something inappropriate comes? And I won't forget this story of the first time my daughter got something that was inappropriate from a friend. And I said, you know, I was looking through her text messages to see what was going back and forth. And I said, how do you feel about this? And she said, well, I don't really like that picture that she sent. And I said, well, how could you respond? She's like, I don't know. I have no idea what I could do here. <laughs> and right. Right. and I am telling you, Fred, because we had the conversation and that communication was open, and she knew I was going to be reading her text messages and that she wasn't allowed to delete them. And that when something came up, she wasn't going to get in trouble for receiving or sending something inappropriate, but we were going to talk about it. Um, then it, it made that conversation so much easier. Now, for yeah. a lot of people, they've already crossed that threshold and you know, you can't turn back time. So if you have not given your kids phones yet, then definitely talk to them about when they get it. This is what it's going to be like. And it just it just made it so much easier because she didn't feel like she was in trouble. She knew something was not appropriate, but but wasn't sure exactly what it was. And now she learned that it was inappropriate not that she did something bad. And that is really important for her, especially for a kid to understand because they associate, I did something bad, therefore I must be bad. And that's not actually the case. And it's something that we need to constantly work with kids to help them see.
1: I think that's a really good um, example, Jethro. And and it's a good reminder that one of the things that makes digital technology challenging and why supervision is, is really important is that there is such potential for receiving things you didn't intend to receive. And, you know, as many, many, many women will tell you, this is increasingly a lifelong problem. So, you know, I think helping her to understand that she didn't do anything wrong, that a friend foisted this on her, is, is an important psychological thing.
0: Yeah. And, and that's, that's something that I intentionally have, have done to ensure that at some point she's going to get something inappropriate from some boy. And, you know, I can't prevent or control that, but I can help her know how to respond to that appropriately, not just how to respond to that boy, but also how to respond within herself so that she isn't degraded by that. And that I think is what is, is so important.
1: That's that that's a key piece. And 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 again, we're relatively new in terms of the use of digital technology and so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. it still blows my mind that we're only a couple of decades into cell phone cameras, period. Yeah. So we're we're adjusting to all of this, but that piece, you know, particularly for the parents of young women, is critical, you know, because yeah. we need to get past this point where there's any internalization of this idea that it's deserved in any way or that Mm -hmm. people are allowed to do that. You know, it's just wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or that they have done something inadvertently to invite it or make him think that that's okay when that's completely out of their, out of their balance.
1: Right. Apart from just being female. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: So we could, we could spend again, a whole nother discussion on, on that will. aspect and uh, we will. We'll, some we'll do a gender
1: show. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so I, the last piece, the advice that we've said all throughout this is really the communication and it, Fred parents who are just starting this are going to totally suck at it. And it's okay. It, any yeah. kind of communication is better than no communication. So if you're afraid to say something or you're not sure how to phrase it appropriately, you know, it's okay to be awkward about it. It's okay to be uncomfortable about it. The important thing is to have the conversation.
1: Well, it's really remarkable because in some ways there's a Venn diagram, right? Between talking to kids about technology and social media, and talking to them about sex. We're not comfortable about any of this, but the fact that those overlap so much means exactly. that we really do need we need to figure this out. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully some of the things that we've talked about are helpful if people have questions. Uh, they're more than welcome to reach out to us. We have resources we can pass on. Um, just get started because again, as, as you said, Jethro, the more communication that takes place between kids and their parents, uh, the better off they are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you're going to do it wrong. You're going to say something wrong. You're going to have to come back later and say what I said before I don't support anymore, and I've got to change my mind. I thought it was okay for you to do X, Y, and Z, and now I realize, boy, that was that was not a good job on my spot. So I'm going to reframe. I'm going to readjust, right. and I'm going to say something different now because you know we're both learning. I didn't grow up with this either.
1: For sure. Well, on the flip, although increasingly, not increasingly, but it will not be long before young parents will have grown up with that. But that being said, I think one of the things that parents should also remember as part of all of this is that kids do have a good grasp of social media, and they're often tapped into um, behaviors, they're tapped into norms in ways that older folks Their parents, for instance, may not be. So parents should be open to listening to children. And again, that's part of the communication. But Mm -hmm. children may well be able to make a good argument as to why they should do X, Y, or Z, while still understanding or while still needing to understand, I guess is the way to put it, that there are relatively bright lines like the 13 and up rule that need Mm -hmm. to be observed.
0: Yeah. And you know, just in closing last night sure. at dinner, my son made a convincing convincing argument that he should be allowed to do something and my wife and I did not have a reason why he shouldn't be able to because of the way that he reasoned through it. And so we said, "Yeah, you can go ahead and do that. It doesn't make any sense for us to say no based on your argument." So, yeah, even though our initial response was no, and then he said, "Well, here's why I think I should be able to." and then we were like yeah that's actually a really good point so go for it <laughs> so if you, you can be open and change your mind and if the kid yeah. has a has a good reason then you know that's that's part of that conversation because now he believes that he can converse with us and have a conversation rather than just be told no and that's that's really important and it's worth it to give up that to get that L for that 1W for him <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's really fun because you're, you know, obviously you're, you're affirming his ability and you're also letting him know that he's taken seriously. So there you go.
0: Yep. Great, great conversation today, Fred. Just a reminder before we close that if you want to get that Raising Cyberethical Kids course, that's gum.co slash RCK audio. And we'd love to to share that with you. And if you're an educator and want to put that on your school site, Reach out to us and we'll tell you how to do that.
1: Fantastic. Excellent, Jethra. That wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cyber security, privacy, and as we did today, the challenges of high tech parenting. Along the way, we will talk to our growing collection of international experts. For helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode just like we did. Please leave us a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends so that we can help more people learn about these important topics. Thanks for being here and we look forward to seeing you on Thursday's show.